Bustin' Loose Baseball, Episode 9, alongside Danny Ruye and producer Darius Dameron. I'm Grant Paulson. We've got a great show set up for you today. We will take a look at Nelson Cruz's resurgence this spring into the summer. Plus, Juan Soto and Lane Thomas had huge series, three-homer game for Layden Thomas against the Reds as the Nats ripped off three straight wins. Got to talk Josiah Gray and how he's holding up. We'll break down some of the advanced numbers on what could be coming down the pike for him. And we'll take a peek at Tanner Rainey's season, trade value, plus what a week at AAA Rochester. Three arms in three days deliver signature performances. All coming up on Bustin' Loose Baseball, including a conversation with Ben Strauss of the Washington Post, who wrote about how the Masson deal, two of the scariest words in Nationals baseball, Masson deal, how the Masson deal will affect an attempted sale of the ball club. So keep it right here and keep on listening. Enjoy Bustin' Loose Baseball, Episode 9. This is Bustin' Loose Baseball with Grant and Danny. Interviews, analytics, and analysis on everything baseball in the nation's capital. Bustin' Loose Baseball with Danny Ruye and producer Darius Dameron. I'm Grant Paulson. I mentioned the three straight wins. Danny, we didn't really know how Nats fans would feel going into the Cincinnati series. We actually took some calls on this on our daily show in D.C., 106.7 The Fan, on Grant and Danny, because they're playing the Reds, who are a team that you are vying with for the worst record in baseball. There is now a lottery in Major League Baseball, so the teams with the three worst records all have a 16% or so chance to get the number one pick. I was kind of hoping they played really well and lost the series. Lo and behold, after losing game one, they rip off three straight. Lane Thomas had a three-homer game. Juan Soto had a two-homer game. The offense came to life, and they knocked around a pretty bad Reds pitching staff. Yeah, this is one of those things to me. I I am not going to be upset when they win games. This is a a misnomer. How could you be? Well, this is one of those things that people that that, uh, are angry at folks like me who embrace the tank or, res- or you know extreme resource allocation is a, a nice little turn of a phrase that we're going to start to adopt here on various programs. But if you're playing young kids and guys that are going to be here in a couple years or you know potential pieces, and they mess around and have a three-homer game, Lane Thomas, or the centerpiece of your franchise, Juan Soto, carries you to a W, or Josiah Gray throws well, I will not be upset. Sometimes when good performances happen, there's a corollary, you win games. Not going to affect me, not going to bother me. The stuff that does bother me is, you know, to, to borrow from a different sport for a second, is when you pay a bunch of veterans to try to be just okay. If they were doing this with the, the third highest payroll in baseball, I'd be furious. I'd be upset every day that they lose a game, that a, another guy that's making 30, 35 million bucks was laying an egg or, or whatever. I don't get upset when young players that are part of a process to get really, really good again, hopefully really quickly within the next couple seasons, Perform well. That's good. Those are the milestones you want. And there's, again, correlation there. When some of these young pieces play well, who we're going to talk about today, they're going to win some ball games. Hard to be upset about that. Yeah, I mean, you win the final game of that series on a terrific play by K. Barrett Ruiz, who's thrown out more base runners this year than anybody in the big leagues. That is productive. That's helpful. That's moving in the right direction. You know, we mentioned Lane Thomas's three homer game. Look, I think he's a spare outfielder on a first division team. I think he's a bench player who can bring some tools, some athleticism, some speed, play a little defense, hit for a little power, whatever it is on on a given day. But he had a three homer game and he had two hits in the most recent win. Uh, You want, you need some of these guys to contribute who are younger 
players on this club. If you're winning a bunch of games because, as an example, uh, Michael Franco hits a big home run. Mm-hmm. That doesn't help me in two years. Empty calories. He won't be here. But when Luis Garcia drives in four, which is what happened over the weekend in a win in, in the game, same game that Soto drove in four and hit a couple homers, that's a really good thing. And then also, you know, look, I need Patrick Corbin to, to be competitive. There's three years left on that contract. You're trying to get him to forget turning a corner and becoming 2019 Corbin again, but just throw in a way that allows you to not have the conversation how much longer can we do this? Because after the first inning, I'm thinking again, how many more trips through the rotation can we give him? And he ends up settling in despite nine hits, six innings, three earned runs, five strikeouts, and he didn't walk anybody. Yeah, quality start. For Patrick Corbin is pretty incredible. So there were a lot of things you can pull out of these three victories, 8-5 on Friday, 10-8 on Saturday, 5-4 on Sunday, and now the day off for the Nationals today before they start their series against the Marlins uh, tomorrow. Wednesday and Thursday in Miami, and then they're home to take on the Brewers. Got to give you a quick note. So on the regular Great Nanny program we do on 106.7 The Fan, you routed a charity event on on Friday. So I I did the show solo. Right before we go to throw it to the Nats uh, broadcast on 106.7 The Fan, the flagship station, I had the lineup, and I read the lineup. I paused and was a little irritated at Lane Thomas hitting second. I expressed that. That's the night that Lane Thomas hit three homers. Since I complained about Lane Thomas hitting second, he is 7 for 14 with three homers and a double and has been outstanding there at the plate. So it just goes to show you the game is weird, man. There's no reason a guy that, as you properly categorize, and listen, he's been on fire here over the last, I don't know, a few weeks or so, but there's no reason for that guy to be hitting second in a major league lineup. And yet, of course, because he did, he had an unbelievable weekend, including that Friday night three-homer game. All right, so I want to talk about a great few days in Rochester with the AAA rotation, Strasburg, Cavalli, and Cole Henry all in consecutive days. We'll get into that in a bit, but some major league items to cover here first. I think this is happening fairly quietly among Nationals fans right now, but Nelson Cruz has completely turned it on. If you look at his numbers, remember the whole goal was get him to a point as a 41-year-old who's great in the clubhouse, where someone is willing to take on that bat because he's having good ABs, he's getting on base, he's driving the baseball, he's hitting home runs, he could drive in runs. Well, Danny, he got off to the tumultuous start. Terrible start. To the point where, because the second half of last season wasn't good and because he's literally got a gray beard and because he's 41 years old, you thought, well, maybe this guy just doesn't have it anymore. If you go back through the weekend, he had a three-hit game. On Friday, a three-hit game on Saturday, another hit on Sunday. So seven for his last 13 now at the plate. But that's a tiny sample size. You know, everyone can have a nice two or three games. Nelson Cruz is hitting 348 in his last seven games over the last week. A slug of over 520, an OPS of almost 1,000 for the last seven games he's played. Last 15 games, 51 at-bats. What do you think he's hitting over his last 15? It's well over 300. 412. There you go. OPS, well over 1,000, by the way. Almost 1,100. Last 30 games, 107 at-bats. What do you think he's hitting in his last 30 games? 389. 330. There you go. He's hitting 327, getting on base at a 400 clip, slugging about 470. He is almost a 900 ops guy and 107 at-bats. And over the last 30 games... Well, the strikeouts are not going to go away. He's also drawn 12 walks. He's gotten on base. People aren't really talking about this, but Nelson Cruz is playing for now a month plus like the guy that they acquired to try to flip for something. And if he can keep this up, 
Doesn't mean he's going to hit 330 for the next month. But if he continues to drive the ball, gets warmer, next thing you know, he has a two-homer game, a five-homer, 10-day stretch, a, you know, six-homer, two weeks or whatever, they're going to get something nice back for him at the, the deadline, which for a while looked like it might not happen. You, I, I think you, you said it very well. Here's my only concern about that. Two homers in the month of May. June is still relatively young, but only one homer this month. People aren't necessarily going to want to trade for a you know a, a, a bat to ball middle of the order presence. They're going to trade for him when he's hitting home runs, and the power needs to be there at some point. I'm hoping some of these start to translate into that because you're 100 right. He's locked in right now after a 155 first five or six weeks um, of the season where he was just wretched, just rolling over ground balls, weak contact, nothing but. He's been squaring the baseball up and and, and has hit very well. I'm not taking anything away from that. To me though, if I'm a rival executive or I'm a team that's looking for power. Am I getting it from Nelson Cruz right now? The answer is no. Three home runs, again, over the last, uh, I'd say, five weeks. Some of those balls have to start carrying out for them to get the return that we're hoping for. So I think there's maybe more to it than that. I mean, you're right, largely. Don't get me wrong. But there are ballparks where, right now, his expected home runs are a lot different than what they are. I mean, as an example, you know, if he was playing for the Brewers, he'd have nine home runs right now. If he was playing for the Nationals... Or every game, when I say four, like every game at their ballpark. Mm -hmm. Five home runs, if every game was at Nats Park, is nine in Milwaukee with where his balls have hit. Eleven in Cincinnati. Mm. Now, the Reds are not, as an example, uh, competing, so maybe it doesn't matter that he'd have 11 there. But my point is just, you know, the Angels might want to bat. He'd have eight there. Or Houston might want to bat. He'd have eight there. So I think there's a lot more that goes into it in terms of process. Here is what else I know. When you look at his percentiles in baseball and how basically what his process has been, I'm just going to rattle off all of where he ranks. These are the percentiles in the sport in various categories. Average exit velocity, 68th. Obviously, anything above 50 is, is above average. Closer to 100, the more elite you are. Max exit velocity, 94th. Hard hit percentage, 79th. Expected Woba, 68th. Expected batting average, 59th. He's batted in some bad luck. Expected slug, 70th. Barrel percentage, 77th. K percentage, 63rd. Walk percentage, 73rd. I mean, you can't tell me that that's not appealing if you need a big bat in the middle of your order. You're right. And then you look, oh, by the way, it's just how the last month has gone in terms of the results, not the process. And he's also hitting the ball away a lot. Like, look at his spray chart. Middle of the field, yeah. Everything is middle and a lot to right. I mean, there's very little. Now, the power is all pull side. I think uh, he's got five homers to left, and I don't see anything else anywhere else. But the amount of hits to right field, like, he is he's doing exactly what your coach to do. I, I think that could help a lot of teams. You're 100% right. I, I mean, overall, the ratios still are, aren't very kind, I think, because that first – five or six weeks again where he was just dreadful. The ground ball fly ball ratio, again, for a power guy, for a big muscular dude that's here to hit tanks, was dreadful. I mean, how many, just think of it anecdotally as you're watching these Nats games. How many soft three-hop room service ground balls to the left side where he's out by 15 feet because he's not here to sprint out, uh, you know, routine grounders? How many of those? So he's still well over one uh, in terms of his ground ball fly ball ratio for the season. But recently that that's kind of come started to equalize. If the ball is in the air for Nelson Cruz, that's more home runs. The guy's too strong. All right, I want to get into Josiah Gray because I was diving around on some of his advanced numbers as well. And and they're not ideal, uh, frankly. I really like Gray. I like how he looks on the mound. I like how athletic he is and a former position player, fields his position, repeats his delivery, does a lot of those things very well. 24 years old, still very young, very inexperienced. I, I just want to bring some of these things up because – 
a lot of times they're predictors of what can become in the rest of the year. Not always, but there's some things when I look at his baseball savant page I don't love. First of them is pitch percentage by season. He's not throwing any more change-ups this year than he was last year. Yeah. At 24, like the story at one point last season was this guy needs to continue to harness and develop his changeup to, to make that essentially an extra pitch. Now, he's got three pitches. People say he's a two-pitch guy. That's not true. He's got the four-seam fastball, which he throws 45 or 46% of the time. He's got a slider he's throwing more this year, about 28% of the time. He's got a curveball he's throwing a little bit less this year, about 23% of the time. That leaves the changeup about 3% of his pitches. And I don't believe, having looked up the numbers, he's gotten a single swing and miss on that pitch this year. Let's just start there. At some point, I feel like he needs to harness a changeup. If that doesn't happen, yes, you could still be a really good starter, fastball, slider, curveball. See Jordan Zimmerman. Yeah, but the margin for error is just different, and I kind of thought it was just naturally going to happen as time went on, but I guess my point is it isn't yet, and he's not throwing any more than he did a year ago when we saw him and I wonder why that is. Yeah, it's a comfort thing. Obviously, you know, I have I can't tell you how many pitchers when you're sort of in that foxhole, when you're in that intense moment, you you go back to your favorite, whatever feels the best that day, right? So we we talked to Mike Rizzo. Remember on the field before the World Series. And we were just, you know, shooting the bull with him about Steven Strasburg. What's a better pitch? Steven Strasburg's curveball or his changeup? Well, every number in the league tells you it's his changeup. The expected batting average off it, the percentage of times people hit it hard, the changeup. But he loves his curveball. Remember that conversation? Rizzo's yeah. like, he just loves his curveball. Just loves the way that it feels and whatever it is. So Gray goes back to what's comfortable, right? It's that curveball, that slider, or whatever feels good today, or, or the riding fastball. So there's a confidence part of it. That's number one. Number two, there's also the fact that you got to make it a good pitch. It's got to be something that's that's worth doing. And it probably isn't right now. And and for some guys that just aren't wired that way, it's hard to kind of learn it and trust it and get a grip that you like. Or you know, There's a million different reasons why it hasn't happened yet. Maybe it's inexperience. Maybe it's you can't really learn on the fly. There, there's, a, there's a trillion to one reasons why it could be the way that it is right now. But well, that's let me what back I, that's, up what you're saying with some numbers really ahead, quick. Because <clears throat> this speaks to exactly what you're saying. So I have the numbers here on, on what his pitches have done this year. So he has thrown his four-seamer 444 times. Just as an example, his change up 32 times. Okay, and I can't even remember that many. It doesn't feel that many, right. honestly. So, but that is probably close to three per start, maybe four per start, yeah. whatever. Uh, and uh, like you, I would have taken the under on that. But I, I bring that up to say that his batting average against on the changeup is five hundred. His batting average against on the four seamers two fifty eight, on the slider one eighty three, on the curve one eighty nine. Weird that you would like the slider and the curve so much, <laughs> yeah. you know? Now I, I'm a bigger fan of expected numbers more so than the actual numbers, right? Um, his expected batting average on the changeup is 309. His expected batting average on the slider, 183, curve, 229, four-seamer, 290, which is still higher than I would have liked. A lot higher, in fact. Expected slug on the four-seamer is almost 750 right now. Damn. So, like, these are the numbers that worry me a little bit. Hard hit percentage is really high on the four-seamer, highest of any pitch. But he hasn't had the success he wants with the changeup. That's part of it. But at some point, you almost just got to jump out of the nest and hope that those wings flap. Right? Devel- development has to happen, and and again, he probably doesn't have one that he likes yet. I mean, there's the you know your old school palm ball. There's your okay circle change. There's the spike change. There, there's a million different ways to throw it. And if you're not comfortable, it's one thing to do it in between starts, touch and feel. You know, throwing sixty percent in the bullpen. You know, I was hoping Tyler Clifford would be in the bigs right now, and his locker would be next to him, and they would just be talking about the changeup all day. Stick aside. 
There was a time when all the Nationals pitching staff, all of a sudden, everybody's changeup got really, really good. It's no coincidence. That, that Bugs Bunny changeup that Tyler Clippert has had his whole career has gotten him, you know, how long has he been in the big leagues? 15 years? Whatever it is. I mean, it, it's no coincidence. So I'm with you, actually. I'd love to have sort of a changeup specific mentor for, uh, for, for Josiah Gray. But it, that arm action that he has gets you that four-seamer that looks like it, um, it hydroplanes a little bit, right? When it's right, it takes off, especially at the top of the zone. A lot of times the tendency is if you get a changeup in your with similar arm action, you just get a BP fastball out of it. And you get kind of this very limited, not much movement with your stiff wrist as you kind of throw it. It's hard to turn it over. It's hard to get the fade. It's hard to get kind of that. When I mean, you think of Strasburg's, it acts like a splitter. When he first came to the show, he's throwing that changeup and guys are turning to the catcher going, is that a split or is that a forkball? How is it moving like that? It's because he's able to get that turnover that that spike type action off it because his you know his arms are or his fingers rather octopus tentacles. Greg may not be wired that way. It's so hard to find a good feel for that so that it's not just a bad fastball. And right now I think it's a bad fastball. So again, this this is a super deep dive and and nitpicky as it gets on numbers because again when I watch him. I like what I see, and I kind of expect every time he throws, like. he could go out there and go six innings, two, three runs. And I think he's got the profile of maybe becoming a number two type starter. I already feel pretty good about penciling him in as a number three type starter. But I'm just trying to kind of figure out, okay, what's working, what isn't? Why is he giving up some of these three-run yep. homers with a bunch of guys on base? Why is his ERA as high as it is? Some of that stuff. So diving a little more into it. Uh, a couple of things I found from the last year sample that we saw when he came up. After the trade to now. So this is year to year up or down, right? Okay. This year compared to last year, his hard hit percentage is up 4%. His sweet sweet spot percentage is up 12.2%. Missing maybe middle of the plate, you know, finding the yeah, sweet spot. Yeah, that says location bat, to me. Yeah. 12% hike there. Um, a couple other things I found interesting. His first pitch strike percentage is down 6%. First pitch strike is one of the most important things the organization harnesses and talks about at the minor league level. We've had people on this show and others that have told us that. So down 6%, not ideal. Guys are swinging at first pitch strikes against him about 7% of the time less. So some of these things kind of jump out at you. A lot of them are similar, comparable. I don't care when his fastball velocity is down 0.6 or his off speeds down 1.3. But when you see some of these kind of crooked numbers, it's just interesting to me a little bit. Uh, Early in the season, obviously – and he's got plenty of stuff and has garnered some pretty good results. But those are just some of the things I found interesting when diving into uh, some of his numbers. So, uh, that's all good nuggets. I mean, it's a unique situation because obviously there, one of some of his assets, some of the things that he's that are best about him, you mentioned the athleticism, a position player until not that long ago. So still the, the finer craft of pitching and sort of as you're refining your delivery to make it repeatable and learning how to finish your pitches and not have that curveball bleed into the slider and, and vice versa so it doesn't turn into one pitch, kind of a slurvy type deal. There's a million things that are really, really hard about pitching at, at any level, let alone at this major league level. Now you're talking about as you're just trying to make sure that you're, you know, you can make your start every fifth day, you're, you're a pro, that you're answering the bell. Now we're talking about sort of changing some of that touch and feel stuff. You know, that's why so many guys, as they have done this for a long time, develop that cutter later in their career as as one extra look or find that change up or, or work differently. Remember, for example, Drew Storen when he came up. He was fastball slider, right, out of Stanford, sort of born and bred to be a closer. As his career went on, the change up became his best pitch as he lost a tick or two off uh, off of his fastball. That's something that happens naturally. You'll you go through some of these experiences. You'll find something that you like, but this has all been very rushed, 
And, you know, if this, if this club was a first division club, if they were trying to win a World Series, I don't know that he'd be in the big leagues right now. He'd be at AAA with Kate Cavalli. You know, today you're throwing 15 changeups no matter what. I, I, we don't care about the results. You can and do those sorts of things. Plenty good enough. Yeah. That, that I'm happy he's here. Like it's Me not, too. It's not a criticism. Yeah, there's also some good luck or some bad luck in here too, right? Where I say, well, I, I don't love this number. Like, he's had 14 home runs that he's given up, okay? Six of them are considered doubters, what they say. Which is to say that, like, about half the home runs, depending on the ballpark, may or may not get Depending out. on the day, wall scrapers. Exactly. Yeah. Like, it's not like he, the people are just tomahawking it into the second deck, which there are pitchers we see that against. Uh, one other thing I wanted to point out, I, I mentioned those percentiles for uh, Nelson Cruz. For Josiah Gray, Danny, expected slug, 16th percentile. Expected mm. isolated power, 5th percentile. Expected on base, 32nd percentile. Barrel percentage, 1st percentile. Oof. Uh, barrel percentage, uh, barrels overall, first percentile. Uh, walk percentage, 18th. Expected ERA, 21st. Fastball spin rate, just 32nd percentile. It's not a high spin guy. Cur- curveball spin rate, 46. So these are all areas where this year, compared to all the pitchers that or his peers, like he's below average. And those are things that their staff's going to look at and say, hey, how do we get this closer to being if you're in the first to the 50th, if you're in the 46th yeah. to the 75th, because, you know, that's where you start to really turn a corner as a starting pitcher. Uh, but that, that's a quick little dive into Josiah Gray's season to this point. What would you think of Juan Soto? Three homers in a couple of games, two homer game. Man, was that good to see. The, the ball he pulled that never got off the ground more than 15 feet. Tracy. That went into, like, the fourth row of, of the right field seats. That was the prettiest swing no one in baseball does whatever that is. It's it's there's no wasted movement. It's gorgeous. And and I mean I mean it literally. Like if you were positioned anywhere along the outfield correctly, you could have just put your glove up if you're seven feet tall and maybe caught it. It was it was like twelve feet yeah, off. Yeah, Ming ground. makes that catch, yeah. It was crazy. Yeah, a, a couple really good swings. I mean, there was uh one of the ones, that towering one to right field, that was just a you know, out of the area code. Uh that was guess middle in, pull side, open up hips and and fire that way. And that was all the more impressive because of the home run he hit basically to center, left center, earlier on in the game. That's the one that shows you that he's locked in. He could pretty much always go pull side. That's just a read and react type thing, right? Because he's so quick. Uh, he gets his hips involved so darn well. His, his base is so good that he doesn't have to sit on that for the most part to hit home runs that way. When he's right, he's center, left center, even straightaway left field because you, you dare go away to him. Now he gets extended, lets the ball travel, and destroys it that way. So to be able to do those in sort of you know consecutive days, super impressive. Looked really, really good. Obviously not just because he had home runs, but the swings look good as well. Tanner Rainey is up to now 17 and a third innings in 17 appearances. He's got 20 strikeouts, a 2.6 ERA, a 1.1 whip. I want to have a longer conversation, and we should put this – Darius on the docket for maybe uh, episode two this week, episode 10 overall, uh, when we talk in a couple days. But I want to talk about whether or not they should trade Tanner Rainey because I keep saying this is a trade ship. This is a guy that they could move, and because he's got controllability, he's got another couple years, I believe, after this one, they could actually get a decent player for Tanner Rainey. He is a high-leverage late-inning reliever. I don't think a championship team bringing him in would want him to close, but you can play matchups with him in like the seventh inning and in a lesser yeah, role. He could help somebody. He could potentially shove for, for a month or two, and he, he was great in the playoff run. 
all the way to the World Series ahead of Hudson and Doolittle in that bullpen. He was kind of the third guy that gets forgotten a little bit. But I get a lot of pushback from Nats fans on Twitter or otherwise who say he's young, he's controllable, he's throwing well. He should be kept. He he could be good in a couple years when they're good again, which is true. But you got to give something up to get something. And I also just believe that relief pitching is volatile year to year. Like, Randy's been up and down and up again, and, and you don't know. Next year, he could walk four and a half per nine and have a problem out of the shoot. I would never turn down an offer for a good non-reliever with a relief pitcher, essentially. Unless we're talking about, like, Josh Hader, one of the, the nastiest guys in the league, and Rainey's not that. Rainey, to me, right now, when he comes in to protect a one-run lead— you don't feel great about that. Yeah, hold that. on to your butts, <laughs> Jurassic Park the, style. The stuff's really good. Yeah. Right? So I, I really do. I think you could get something for him. I would probably flip him, but I think there's a good conversation to have in detail a couple days from now. I did do a quick note. He turns 30 on Christmas Day this year. Uh, and as you said, the volatility of, that, of the reliever position. Birthday. His I birthday's know. on Christmas? It's a, he's a Christmas birthday. I, I didn't think that was even allowed. Yeah, like, it's what tough. a terrible That's thing. It's tough because he gets lost in the sauce. Happy birthday, Tanner. Christmas presents for everybody. You're not that special. Do you... You have to celebrate your half birthday as your birthday then, right? So I think what you do is morning with the family. Everybody open presents. And then we have our breakfast, whatever you do. Like, right? You have your sausage links and your waffles and all the different stuff. Then in the afternoon. Maybe some eggs. Maybe some eggs. Maybe some toast. A little souffle. In the afternoon, it's the dedicated specific Tanner Rainey birthday. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, like, but even still, that's awful because— well, everyone's, everyone's together. Uh, yes, that's fair, but everyone's got their toys, including you. So now you're just doubling up. So, like, I want to play with my—I I just got Madden on, on Xbox, yeah. on PlayStation 2. Mm-hmm. I want to play that, but now I'm also getting this other toy I want to play with. Whereas if I got it in a few months, it'd be better because— Spread it out. Yeah. It's just a bad situation. No, it's tough. I, I know three people in my life who were born December 26th. That's—talk about an afterthought. Yeah, that's, that's that is tough, right? And everyone just left town, probably, or yeah. is leaving town. All right, see you later. Oh, happy birthday. That might be worse than worse than Christmas Day. It might be worth. Is there anyone you know named Worth? My, yeah, I accidentally I, said Worth. I do. I, one of my teammates was Chris Worth. Well, I was thinking of Jason Worth. Well, he didn't like us. Not not that much. He I mean, he probably didn't care about us either way. We cared. He, I don't well, think we moved him to emotion, other than when we were around him. Yeah. Like, he would recognize us and say, oh, those guys are annoying because they exist. But I don't, like, if you walk up to him and say, what do you think of Grant and Danny? Yeah, he, he would wouldn't, not. He didn't know us by name. He knew us by sight. Yeah. Uh, so, like, for uh, like, here's an example. Um, you know, we're doing our jobs. Remember, 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 like, the whole thing, we're doing our jobs? Mm-hmm. And we go to National Spring Training, and we go into the— Spent a lot of money. Flew there. Yeah, we go into the stayed locker in the hotel. Right? Again, to bring like, our listeners closer to the team. Yeah, hoping to promote the team that he's on, right? It, we, cause we're baseball guys. It's good for everybody. We just love them to be good. And we try to interview players on, on the Nationals, right, to be able to play them on our radio program. Program. And uh, he would slam the 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 locker doors because it was at that old stupid stadium with like yeah. the metal locker doors and yell curse words in the background so we couldn't use the audio. <laughs> really, really fun stuff. I I definitely miss him. <laughs> a lot of a lot of fun stuff. Uh, he had some good moments on the mic. Yes, he on did. The field. He got a promo. <laughs> he did a couple of promos. All right, there were three straight days where great news for the Nats at AAA. So why don't we end here? Starting with Steven Strasburg. Strasburg's debut went so well that it's now being considered, and who knows, when you're listening to this, this could already have come out with Davey talking or something, but we're hearing that Stras could pitch in the big leagues this week. That's how good his last couple rehab starts have yeah. been. 
including in AAA. I was at his first rehab start in Fredericksburg, which was statistically pretty disastrous. Uh, The fact that he came out healthy was kind of all that mattered. But I bring that up only to say that in talking to one of the Nats staffers that was there, they speculated three more starts. Well, he has since made at least, uh, let's see, he made Made one more in Fredericksburg. He made the one over the weekend, so it would mean one more start. So I kind of thought he'd be in line for one more. But maybe they've seen enough. In that outing, by the way, Danny, one hit over six innings, 83 pitches thrown, four strikeouts, and just one walk for Strauss. So if you look at his last two outings, he's given up one hit. He has been really, really good. Very promising. Because I thought this was going to take a while for a, for a multitude of reasons. But the, the, the least notwithstanding is... He needed to to build up. He needed to go through the process of doing what you do in spring training. You get up, you get down, you get sore, you run it out, you do your arm exercises, and you build up that tolerance to be able to go through the hall of a major league season. I thought that was just going to take longer. I did. Now, he's been nails, and it's been awesome. So I guess to me it's about his body feeling really well afterwards and that recovery feeling you know, more, more normal than, than it has. The other part, you know, listen, I mean, he's coming back from a major surgery where the track record is not great, so they were you know, doing their due diligence and trying to find their best medical practice to sort of figure out a way to get him back. And it seems right now this minute that he's feeling pretty good. I mean, it's, it's hard to do what he did, even to minor leaguers, and not have a good feel for the ball coming out of your hand. Right, If it feels mechanical, if it feels labored, if it feels forced, you grip it too tight and things aren't right, his stuff seems right. And I think now that sort of explains the fast track. I would have him throw one more time in AAA and then get him to the big league closer to the end of the month. But we're going to see in the coming days what they decide to do. Uh, the next guy I wanted to talk about. So Strauss threw on Friday. The next day was a doubleheader for Rochester, and Cade Cavalli started second game of that doubleheader. He again threw a gem. For the Red Wings. Uh, this start, seven innings of five hit, one run ball. He struck out 10 batters, two walks. Mm. Uh, I loved it because I actually thought he was done at like 90 pitches and, and six innings, a little under 90 pitches. They brought him back out for the seventh and he got the inning uh, under his belt. So he is now twice in a row gone seven innings, Danny, which is a huge deal. Uh, he p- faced one of the worst lineups in AAA baseball on May 28th, so you can note that if you want. But seven innings of two-hit ball, he struck out six and walked one. And then in this start, five hits, one run, two walks, ten strikeouts, over seven innings. So his last three starts, he's completely turned his season around because it was an ultra-disappointing start to the year. We talked about that. How about 19 innings of eight-hit, 20-strikeout baseball over his last three starts for Cade Cavalli? That is what we were excited about. Because remember, at spring training, he was throwing the hell out of the ball. He was. And then it was either his last start or his last two starts. I can't remember if it was well, one or two. The last one was against the Cardinals where he's still giving up runs. Right, I think yeah. he gave up 16 runs. He's That's still there That's, somehow. Yeah, it was 12, actually. And, and getting just tattooed. And they said, okay, maybe triple A for Cade. Got, got off to a rough start. And, and you, you know, that's what this is why we're here. This is the whole point of this, right? The whole point of the exercise is you iron out. Some of those things away from prying eyes, away from the Grants and Dannys, away from the people that are going to second guess and question things, a much more low-pressure environment. You take your time, control the innings, control uh, you know some of the adversity that the, that the player goes through. Seems as if he's found himself now, understatement of the century, as he's been dealing his last couple times out. Speaking of dealing, so he pitches Saturday. You had Strauss Friday. Bang, bang, boom. You had Cade Cavalli Saturday. Boom, boom, bah. I don't know if that's a boom, boom, bah. Boom, boom, bah. Yeah. Okay. Then you had Cole Henry on Sunday. Bing, boo, beep, pow. How about this? 
Cole Henry on Saturday, uh, Sunday rather. I think I said Saturday a bunch. I got confused. Don't worry about it. Saturday. Three straight days. So on Sunday, Sunday Cole Henry, five innings, three hits, no runs, three strikeouts for Cole Henry. Five innings of three-hit shutout ball in his AAA debut. He had been in AA. We talked to him a few weeks ago. Seven starts there, 23 innings. They're treating him with kid gloves, 28 Ks, only uh, five hits given up all season. So now his grand total for the year, Danny, he has in 2022 thrown 28 innings and allowed eight base hits. <laughs> that is just ridiculous. The dude is nasty. 087 average, 063 whip. Cole Henry, one for one in AAA, baby. Let's go. Guys don't pick him up particularly well, it seems like. I mean, the, the stuff plays. He's nasty. It's a matter of health. It's a matter of being able to take the ball every fifth day or you know, however he's ultimately going to be used. But, I mean, the results speak for themselves. I mean, he's throwing wiffle balls to these guys. It seems like they, they got no chance. So far, they haven't, and it was really, really good to see. All right, that's your deep dive into all things that matter at the big and minor league levels here to start the week. So why don't we do this? We caught up with Ben Strauss on our D.C. show, writes for the Washington Post, had a lot to say about the Masson deal and how it could help or hinder the attempted sale by the learners. If they're able to get a sale, how is this Masson deal going to be resolved or will it? We talked to Ben Strauss about that. Here is that conversation right here on Bustin' Loose Baseball. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Long gone. Ben Strauss of the Washington Post. We saw this story today, enjoyed it, thought it was really insightful and wanted to get him aboard, and he's kind enough to give us a few minutes. The piece in the Post, you can read now, a national sale could be hindered by the Masson mess or help solve it. Ben, thank you for joining us on Grant and Danny. How are you? I'm good, man. Thanks for uh, Thanks for having me on. Pleasure, bud. Can we start by just explaining to people, we hear the Masson dispute all the time as a phrase. Can you give people kind of an elevator pitch explanation on what the Masson mess is? Yeah, it's going to be a long elevator ride, but here you go. (laughs) Um, Good line. In uh, in 2005, the Nats, the Expos, Major League Baseball, wants to move them to, to Washington. There's already a team in this regional area as defined by Major League Baseball as the Orioles. Essentially, they have a TV uh, geographic area, essentially geography that they own that stretches from Delaware to North Carolina, right? They're, they're essentially a, a big market team because they've got Baltimore, D.C., and, and sort of all of this geography, which is super valuable. Peter Angelos and the, the Orioles say to Major League Baseball, you're going to move a team to D.C., we need to get compensated. Um, and so they draw up essentially this Masson agreement, and it says that it is going to compensate the Orioles for putting a team in their geography. And the terms of that deal are essentially that Masson, uh, the, the sports network, is going to own the television rights for the Orioles and the Nationals. And they're going to own them in perpetuity, and the, the Nationals cannot you know, sell their TV rights on the open market. And the, the Orioles and the Nationals are 
their TV rights are going to be joined. Um, and, and the Orioles are going to control this network um, while the Nationals are, are part owners. And that was a deal that was signed. Um, and that is the deal that, that continues to exist. Um, where it gets tricky is, is there have been a number of lawsuits over how much money that network should be paying the Nationals. And um, I think the, the Nationals have felt um, pretty restricted by it, uh, as evidenced by the learners' comments. And, and now as they go to sell the team, um, the idea that they don't own their TV rights as, as other networks or other teams do, um, this is a pretty big source of revenue um, and a pretty big deal when you own a, a baseball team. Um, is, is a, a pretty big complication in terms of, you know, what are you going to buy when you're buying this team and then how much you're going to pay for it, I think. So, Ben, quantify then how damaging or restricting it is or they think it is and, and how that works out. Like, in other words, if they were making the types of money through a TV network that the Red Sox and the Yankees and the Dodgers and some other top 10 market teams do – is the learner's contention that they would just immediately pour that into the ball club and, and then the payroll would be higher? How, how does that actually work? I don't think it's that simple. I don't think that you can say we would get X number of dollars if we just sold them on the market. Um, the RSN business is not um, the greatest business to be in these days. And, and in the story we wrote today, we actually say that, that there was an attempt um, about 10 years ago to sell Masson to Comcast. And, you know, Masson wouldn't be... In the TV business, as we know it, the, the Nationals and the Orioles games would be on Comcast. There would probably be more investment, and they'd be getting more money um, in their TV rights deals than they are now. So I don't think it's as simple as saying, um, you know, if we sold our TV rights on the open market, we'd get X number of dollars more um, there is a legal dispute, right? And, and a court has said the Nationals are owed about $100 million um, in back pay for rights between 2012 and 2017. So you think about that as $20 million a year for that uh, period of time. That's like one way to look at it. But like the Nationals being a, a completely different franchise, um, I'm not so sure about that. Ben Strauss, Washington Post with us here. So Ben... What's the visibility into this thing ending? I, because I don't see it. And, and that, to me, is is an essential part of any sale or just even operating for, for the Nationals. So it's a, it's, a good, it's a good question. But there are, um, and I talked to some people close to the deal, who, who do think there's an expectation that they will at least revisit some talks on how you can unwind this thing. Um, because there's no real mechanism to unwind it absent um, an agreement absent, you know, a new deal. There's, there's not some trigger that, that, that ends this thing. There's not, you know, nothing in the contract that seems to say this will end it. Like, it, you know, if the teams get sold, this is, this is going to go on until, you know, these two sides in Major League Baseball come to the table and say, well, this is what a new agreement could look like. Um, so in that sense, it's a little pessimistic. But there is optimism that because of the national sale, um, the Nationals, you know, do have a real impetus to come to the table and, and, and make a new deal. And because you've got that $100 million um, that a court has said the Nationals are owed by Mass and that there's a leverage play here for the Nats, um, you sort of make a deal with, with that um, amount of money and, and sort of figure out what 
it could look like going forward. But there is there is actually some leverage here on the Nats side, which there hasn't existed before. And, you know, you also have rumors um, that the Orioles are, are a team that could be interested in selling. And so, you know, having different people in these seats besides the Angeloses and the Learners, maybe there's a little bit of less bad blood and you could, you know, see a way out of this thing. So I, I think there's <laughs> reasons to be you know, pessimistic, but also reasons to be optimistic that, that something could happen here. Ben, the, the way I've always felt this was going to end would have been the commissioner just finally saying, screw it, best interest of baseball, hammer comes down and a reasonable deal happens. But you make it seem like, or you, it, according to the, what you what you learned, that may not be the likely scenario. Yeah, my sense is that is not that likely because the Orioles have argued, you know, successfully in court that Major League Baseball isn't at all times a completely neutral arbiter here, um, and and there was an award that a, the Major League Baseball, you know, broadcast committee awarded the Nationals in you know one of these monetary disputes, and the Orioles. You know, challenged that and said the lawyers that the the, the baseball has used, you know, uh, had ties to the Nationals um, and vice versa, and and you know, a, a court sided with the Orioles, and so there's there's precedent here in saying that Major League Baseball, you know, isn't the neutral arbiter that that would be required for them to unwind this, and so I think there's definitely frustration on the fans of the Nat side, right? Like you're watching the network. It's not as good as some of these other networks that you see, right? Just the, the everyday product of, of, of what you see. Um, but, you know, the Angelos is on the other hand negotiated a, um, what seems to be a, a, a pretty, um, you know, a, a pretty, I don't know what the right word is, you know, airtight, um, you know, significant, tough to get out of, uh, legal contract and and you know that is uh what the learner signed on to our guests wrote a piece you should check out in the washington post ben strauss nat sale could be hindered by the mass and mess or help solve it there's a paragraph here where you quote a managing partner of a sports group an investment bank that has consulted with major league teams on sales and the quote is i don't think you'd be able to close on a sale without a resolution one way or another on Masson." What are the resolutions then? Like, what are we're saying? Something needs to happen. What are the options? What are the somethings? Yeah, that's a really good question, right? So, one possibility is just that if the Orioles want to sell, the the Angelos family wants to sell, maybe you there's just a settlement. You buy out of the contract um, would be one version. Um, other than that, you know, some I think I quote somebody else in the story that said, you know, it's not just as simple as just giving the Nats their TV rights because Major League Baseball is sensitive to this idea that the, the Orioles, you know, need to be taken care of. And if, uh, if you just take away the, the, the Nationals TV rights, they're left in this like really small market that used to be huge. And, you know, Baltimore is a shrinking city and you want to protect that franchise, too. So. You know, maybe if there's new owners willing to make a new deal to partner the TV rights in a way that that, that feels fair to both sides, you could you could look at it that way. Um, you know, if it's not a monetary settlement, but you know, maybe those two options. Yeah, it's the classic case of robbing Peter and keeping that money in escrow and not paying Paul. Uh, what an unbelievable shebingus this has turned out to be. I, I can't believe we're still talking about it, Ben. This is great reporting, man. I appreciate the time. <laughs> 
Yeah, it is actually kind of funny that, that, that uh, you know, in the story, there's a couple of, there's some minutes from um, an, uh, an owner's meeting in 2005. Yeah. And, you know, there's owners from around the league that are literally saying this exact thing, like, we can't believe how long this deal's going to last. And, you know, what does this mean, you know, for a Nat sale? So um, there were people who had, you know, we're asking the exact same questions today that, that some people were asking 17, 17 years, ago. years ago. That's incredible. Unbelievable. Thanks, Ben. They, they were all over it. Uh, it's a great story. Good Good journalism. Thank you. Appreciate it, guys. Take care. Thanks to Ben Strauss for joining us on Grant and Danny on 106.7 The Fan and allowing that conversation to work out for us here on Bustin' Loose Baseball. All right, let's end the first episode of the week how we always do with episode one of every week, and that is our stud and our dud for the Nationals over the last seven or so days. So, Darius, who is your stud of the week? Despite a rough series against the Mets before they made their way to Cincinnati, uh, there are quite a few candidates for studs this week, uh, but I'm going to go with Josh Bell. Josh Bell batted 379 over the last week, uh, six RBIs. He did dri- drive in a home run, a couple of doubles. So Josh Bell is my stud of the week. Big swing, big moment in Cincinnati as part of the onslaught. Danny, where are you going? Kia! That's the sound of a crow. I will now eat that crow. I complained on Friday on the Grant and Danny program that Lane Thomas was hitting second. All he did is go 7 for 14, have a three-homer game that very night. It started about 20 minutes after I said he shouldn't be hitting second. So, of course, I have to eat that crow. Batting 500 in the month of June. Uh, OPS in the 1.2 range. Very Bonzian uh, post-arrival to San Francisco. Lane Thomas has been on fire. Nelson Cruz, man. We, we talked about it, and we don't need to go back through all the numbers. But in this week where he wins this nomination from me, 8 for 23 at the plate. How about a 348 average and an OPS sitting at 980 plus? Love what Nelson Cruz has done. Every time he delivers, it's not just a big deal for the current Nats. It's a big deal because the price for acquiring him could go up a hair if he stays hot. Who's your dud of the week, Darius? My dud of the week, uh, this one stings a little bit because he made a great play to end the game on Sunday. But Caber Ruiz threw six games this week. He only has one hit. It's been a struggle at the plate for Caber Ruiz. So that's going to be my dud of the week. He has drawn five walks. He hasn't struck out a lot during this stretch, but uh, but only one hit through through six games. It's been a rough week for Caber Ruiz, despite the game-winning play on Sunday. That is the one really good thing I would say. Even when it's not going well for K-Bear, he's not going to strike out a lot. The ball will be in play, which I dig. All right, Danny, what do you got? Cesar Hernandez, two for his last 26. As your table setter, top of the order, only a couple bases on balls in there. And they're struggling to find people to get on base in front of Juan Soto. The best way to get the most out of Juan Soto is traffic in front of Juan Soto. Lane Thomas is pulling his weight. Right now, Cesar Hernandez is not. How about Erasmo Ramirez, uh, who has struggled? Gave up a big crooked number in Cincinnati. Last seven times we've seen him throw here, his ERA is over seven. 15 hits in seven and two-third innings over his last seven innings. I'm going to say that again. Say, wait, wait, say that one more time. Uh, 15 hits, Uh-oh. seven and two-third innings the oh, last no. seven times we've seen him. It has not gone well for the 32-year-old righty, Erasmo Ramirez. The math on that is not very good, Grant. I don't like the math. I'm not going to break out a calculator and bother doing it. Those are your studs and duds, and that has been Bustin' Loose Baseball. We are back at it later this week where we'll take a dive into the minor leagues. Let us know who you want to hear on the show. We always get a guest on uh, for the second episode each week. So tweet us at Grant H. Paulson or at Funny Danny. Hit up Darius if you want to and just let us know how and what you want to hear us break down on Bustin' Loose Baseball. Thanks for making the show part of your Nats fandom. 
Let's get a series win against the Marlins.